This week we're discussing transplantation in inherited metabolic disease. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Monique Williams discussing a recent paper regarding the European experience of transplantation in inherited metabolic disease, notably amino and organic acid related disorders. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me. Uh, it's very nice to join you for this uh, interview about transplantation in uh, Europe. Well, perhaps you could begin by saying what you hope to achieve with this work. The main goal is to unify the European Union, including the UK, of course, which has changed uh, all of a sudden at the beginning of this year. And uh, the question arose from a meeting we had, a European uh, meeting, where one of the members asked about where she should send her patients for transplantation. And that's what got the whole thing going as the uh, people on the conference. It was also a telephone, telephone conference, although it was pre-corona uh, time. And we just thought, uh, stick our heads together and organize this. Because also in uh, more like the Netherlands, it's not a very large uh, country. And we have transplantation for the kidneys is in Rotterdam and for the liver is in Groningen. And so communication is difficult. And of course, you want to improve treatment. And well, we know diet is not everything. I mean, it's being a strict vegan, but more extreme, although that does not imply that I don't condone a vegan diet for uh, people who do it willingly, but if it's put upon you, it's quite different. And in a worst case, you also have to take these amino acids and they taste horrible. And so many children and possibly also a number of adults use a nasal gastric tube or another connection to the uh, stomach to take those. So it's quite an intervention. And although with a, a liver transplantation, you're not free of medical treatment. It does differ and the diet can be released to more natural diet. The diet is a, a, obviously a massive imposition for the families that are asked to do it. Um, the study that you've undertaken is certainly um, very ambitious. The aim was obviously to provide an overview of all known transplanted, I think, MMA, PA, uh, MSUD and UCD patients uh, within Europe. How can one hope to achieve that? Well, all being members of the SSIEM, we wrote to all the clinical practitioners and just asked, did they have transplanted patients in their cohorts? And were they willing to answer the interview we would send to them? And I think, uh, well, about half returned their data. And I think that's quite an achievement because I'm sure not all physicians we wrote to uh, do transplants. Huh? And a limitation of the numbers was that there was no other way in finding out how many of these patients were actually transplanted. Huh? Because even Eurotransplant does not, uh, in their data, write down, was it an MMA patient or was it a PA patient? It's just 
metabolic disorder, or maybe not even that. And, uh, well, that's how we went about it. And people were enthusiastic because it was born from this group as well. well I suppose I'm, I'm curious as to what you found then. Well, what we found and what I found was interesting It uh, is, for example, the death rate was similar to other uh, transplantations for other causes underlying diseases than uh, metabolic diseases. So that's what I found promising. And what we don't know is how we should go about using the diet after transplantation. For MSUD, we know there is not a real problem, but for MMA and PA, we know the brain still produces toxic intermediates. But what can you achieve with a diet? Can you prevent further damage? And and those are the things we do not know. So that's what we want to go after in the future. And you talked um, early on about the diet being one of the reasons for people undertaking transplant. But when you transplant a liver, you're swapping effectively one condition for another. Or in this case, you're not necessarily taking the first condition away. It's still it's still there. It's still causing some issues. The children for whom transplant may seem the most attractive are those who are at risk of significant decompensation and and fatal decompensation, certainly the urocycle disorders. Did you find that affected which groups of patients were more likely to go ahead with transplant? Well, I found that uh, decompensation in early age is a reason to transplant uh, because the decompensations also affect your outcome, your uh, IQ and also uh, neurologic uh, damage because of the uh, frequent decompensations. So that's one of the main reasons to do it. And for MMA, for example, who develop liver disease early or later in life, depending on the severity of the disease, kidney transplantations are performed later. And since a few years, for MMA at least, uh, we're trying to combine the liver and the kidney transplantation. But for children, at least, that can be difficult because the bodies are small the livers they receive are large, uh, and that can give complications uh, during the operation as well. So we want to really find out what's the best time. And that's one of the other things we did not get answered. uh, And although we did not question this in our interview, that's what we would like to find out. So this is just the first step, and now we need to proceed. And in your work, when you were looking at um, uh, transplantation numbers, did you get a feel for how commonly inherited metabolic disease is the reason for transplant? I think in the States, it's the second most common cause after biliary atresia for transplantation in childhood. Are we the same in Europe? No, no, not at all, because the indications in the US are quite different because Uh, patients with a metabolic disorder are put on the list just because it's an inherited disease. They're on top of the list. And uh, in Europe, uh, we don't have those criteria. So it's either because of severe disease or organ failure that patients are transplanted. Okay. And this this is obviously a huge piece of work. Are there any limitations around the approach that you took? Uh, Well, we wanted to be much more extensive initially, but we got some good advice. So we limited it uh, in order to get 
all the participants uh, able to uh, fill in the questionnaire because it takes some time. You have to look up all the patients' uh, files, whether or not they are uh, electronic. Uh, it's some task to perform besides your daily uh, job. And then uh, you can imagine all the paper files uh, that still go around. Uh, sometimes it's even difficult to, to read the handwriting, what people mean, what the indication could be. So that's difficult. And uh, we wanted to ask so much more, uh, and I'm glad we didn't, but that's the next project. And I think we need to discuss with all the other members of uh, MATOP ERN and also the transplantation ERNs, as I call them, to work together and to, to get the registries ready to see what's the best tactic for these uh, patients and what will be the best outcome. Uh, another point from this, well, what we learned, we know in Japan, patients only receive a living organ so it's either parents or family members. So in most cases, they are carrier livers. And we don't know what the difference is between outcome of those patients. And it seems that they are still on a protein-restricted diet. So from a quality of life point of view, uh, that's probably not the most optimal organ to transplant. And without... Proof, that's the difficulty um, I had, to convince uh, transplanters who are not in your center that they should not use the uh, carriers for donating a living organ. It's, it's interesting, you, you mentioned Japan, you've been talking about having a very kind of European focus to this, but the reality is we live in a world where we get international comparison between outcomes and and practice yes. has the work you've done changed your perspective on transplant have you got a sense of who's doing it right having literature on transplantations with the different indications we just discussed makes it difficult uh, to compare outcome and that's what uh, keeps happening and that obscures how you go into the discussion with colleagues what you want for a certain patient so we're, we're getting better, we're improving, but we need to discuss this with one another. I mean, should we be doing more transplants? Well, we know that outcome, especially for the organic acidemia patients, is not what we expected with the diet. Patients um, uh, still have an outcome that could be much better. Maybe it cannot be better, but at least we should achieve this. And I think with the current therapies being developed, and you can see how rapid it goes with developing a vaccine against COVID using the mRNA technique, there are uh, new treatments uh, in design and in trial using this same technique. And I think that could be something for the future. But uh, currently, it's only just like liver transplantation being directed at the liver uh, so not an overall cure, but that may come in the future. But currently, it, it still takes a long time for these, for these trials with new treatments to come into practice. And I think it can take another 10 years at least. Uh, so um, it really depends on what the patient's condition is now 
to see whether we should go for transplantation now or do we have some time uh, to wait for these new treatments and uh, keep looking at the patients so that they do not miss the opportunity of uh, receiving a transplant to improve their outcome. It'd be nice if something positive came from the pandemic, if it paves the way for new treatments in rare diseases. Yes, uh, because everyone has then been subjected to uh, at least the majority, I think, to an uh, an mRNA treatment uh, in in developing uh, antibodies against the disease. Well, uh, the technique is similar, so I think uh, it could work. Oh, that's something we can look forward to hearing perhaps more about in future. Yes. And are you, I, I do wonder, having um, sat in meetings and heard about the MSUD experience, I think, is it in Pennsylvania in the States where they have experience around domino transplants yes, where yes, you're actually great. making a, yeah. a net contribution to the donor pool? Is, uh, is that something that, I mean, obviously they have a rather unique um, setting around the patient population they're looking after there but is is that something that are we seeing domino, uh, domino transplants in, in Europe yes, as well? Yes yes in uh, Hamburg and also in uh, Italy they uh, they do the domino uh, transplants as well but I know in other transplant centers uh, they do not and that's just not knowing about where the, the, the disease is is located huh? uh, just in the liver or in liver and kidneys and brain and what the percentage of this enzyme deficiency uh, overall is to not affect the recipient of the patient receiving the domino, so to speak. Well, I think we've probably largely covered it. I don't know if there was anything, I mean, you've mentioned there's some things you want to do in future. Where do you see your work going next in this area? Um, well, currently I'm, I'm working together with uh, the University of Groningen, where they do the liver transplants to make a, a protocol, uh, how we should form the indication for transplantation and on what grounds, what we should discuss for this patient as a team, uh, not being at the same location, but um, being a team nonetheless, and protocolizing uh, follow-up and trying to found, find out the difficulties that occur post-transplant, but uh, because nothing goes without any problems. And what I want to do with that is discuss this Dutch protocol with my European colleagues and see how we can uniform this. Well, it sounds like you've got your work cut out, but uh, I wish you all the best with trying to get everyone to agree i think we it sounds like we have wonderful collaboration certainly amongst the scientists in europe even if not all the nations and is there anything else you wanted to add our patient recently transplanted uh, was on television to promote people uh, giving up parts of their liver and this resulted in about 50 volunteers And then there was another child who also needed the liver. And these patients went on another program in uh, the Netherlands. And they uh, also achieved uh, getting the number equal to that 50. So there, at that time, there were 100 people volunteering. And of course, they don't all match. And some people will uh, close the door on whether they really uh, want it. But I thought that was unbelievable that uh, so many people uh, would want to help.
And uh, well, we were not we were not there on these TV programs as physicians at all. So it was a, a the patients' uh, parents' initiative. I think that's incredible. I think it's certainly heartening to hear what people will do when they're asked, and perhaps we just need to be asking more people. Certainly, we've moved to con- presumed donation after death, as opposed to presuming to the contrary. And I don't know what the donation laws are in in the Netherlands. Yeah, that's well, that's changed. Uh, you had to have a, a donor codicil, but now if you don't object, they will use your organs. But of course, there's always family around, and if they say no, it will not happen. So there's an, a, a completely new uh, registry nowadays. Uh, I'm really grateful for you finding the time to um, speak with me this afternoon. Uh, if you would like to read Monique's paper, you can go to the journal website and uh, search for European Experience of Transplantation in IMD. And if you'd like to hear more podcasts in the journal, then search for JIMD Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Monique, thank you again for your time today. Thank you very much, James, for uh, this podcast. Thank you. And um, thank you for listening and goodbye.